You tuned in to Reverse Assimilation. We're your hosts, Lisa Saldivar and Jay Verrones. This is an audio archive unpacking the generational trauma of Mexican Americans as a result of assimilation into American society, in hopes of reversing that shit. In this first collection of interviews, we focus on Mexican Americans that have come to Mexico for a variety of reasons, and who all fall on different points of the assimilation spectrum. We got a lot of work to do, so let's get after it. So we're starting it all off with our first interview, Jesus, who was actually born here in Mexico. He was born in Jalapa, Veracruz, but was raised outside of Chicago since the age of six, actually. Jesus is a designer, curator, and model for their label Les Jesus, which challenges the status quo by destroying the norms of a largely capitalist fashion industry. They do this by recontextualizing traditional Mexican textiles. And I believe it's righteous as fuck. So let's get into it. Where are you originally from and what has been your relationship to Mexico and the U.S. throughout your life? I'm originally from Veracruz, from um, Jalapa, which is the capital there, a beautiful town. So I think that to, to kind of get into it or to understand the context of where I fall in the Mexico, U.S., kind of um, relationship is a little bit of my story. Um, I was born here, but when I was six years old, my parents took my brothers and I, I have a younger brother and an older brother, to live in the States. I come from a a very poor family, um, and poor as in, like, we lived in a a wood house um, in, like, kind of the outskirts of, of the city because my parents come from little pueblos that are um, by the coast of Veracruz. So they come from like really, really poor communities. Um, and they they were together when they were very young, like 16, 17. So also that, you know, you don't make great decisions when you're that age. They had children when they were young. So by the time they were in their 20s, they had three kids. They didn't have very stable lives. Um, my mom sold food sometimes. Um, just to get by, and my dad was a construction worker, um, what here is called an albañil, not technically a construction worker, more like an obrero, which is not uh, is not skilled labor, and it's not highly paid here. So they decided to go to the U.S. first, and then a few years later, like a year later, my brothers and I, so we crossed the border when I was I was six, my older brother was seven, and my younger brother was four. So I think that that at that at that point, your identity, your patriotism, all those things that make up who you are aren't very cemented. So obviously, I'm from Mexico, and I knew that, and I understood that growing up. But just growing up, like from six on, in a in a different culture, um, with a different language, having to learn a different language, like just being immediately submerged into something that is is not where you come from. At first, it's shocking, but you have to assimilate to, to survive. That makes total sense. What was your experience crossing the border? It seems it's more like a dream because it's, it's surreal. I didn't cross with my parents. I crossed with an uncle and my grandpa, which is my dad's dad. So it was me and my older brother and them too. 
Um, at first, you take a bus. My parents paid, I think my mom told me a few months ago. At the time, it was like $5,000 per person that you would pay. Now it's anywhere from like five to $10,000. So they pay up front like half. And then when the person is on the other side, you pay the other half of the coyotes fee, right? Um, so we took a bus from Veracruz to the border with Mexico in Nogales and crossed um, through the Arizona desert. So it's about, it's about like a four or five day trip. It's about a week. Um, it takes a day to get to the border, a day and a half on bus. And then you get dropped at a safe house uh, on the Mexican side. Um, at night, you actually is when you do the crossing because it's when the border is less patrolled. So we walked a whole night from like 3 a.m. to about 7 a.m. Um, and then you kind of like, because, but that's not enough time to cross the desert. You have to like lay low for the for the whole duration of that day, that next day in the bushes um, because there's helicopters. Now there's drones, but at the time, you know, it was like 1999, early 2000. Um, so at, at that time, there wasn't drones. There was just helicopters and like um, foot patrols or like trucks patrolling where we were crossing. And then you're like, spend the whole day in the desert, just kind of laying low. Then that night you finish your crossing and you get picked up by like, if you don't get caught obviously, by a car or a truck or a van and get taken to a safe house on the US side, mm -hmm. um, depending on where you cross. So we, we spent a whole day in, in that safe house on the U.S. side um, of Phoenix until our parents or whoever is your, your family member there pays the rest of your ransom or your, is that a ransom because you don't get kidnapped, your fee. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it does feel like being kidnapped because you can't leave until they pay your fee. And some people do spend uh -huh. a long time at those safe houses waiting on the money or, you know, there's a lot of complications. So when you get, when you get paid, um, they drop you off at either a airport or a bus station. So we got dropped off at a bus station and we took a bus from Arizona to Chicago, which is around where my parents live. They lived in a city like an hour and a half outside of Chicago. Then that's, that's where I grew up after that. It just kind of, just kind of start. So that's where my relationship starts with the U S. So what was it like first settling into Chicago? Was it easy to find work? It's usually easy when you when you go because there's a lot of Latino communities um, mm -hmm. everywhere in the U.S. and they yeah. kind of take you in and help you and you get fake documents like a fake ID or so they they started working like that. My dad started working in landscaping um, right away because his brother and his brother-in-law were already there, so they okay. got him into a what's called a nursery. So he started working um, at a nursery year-round. And my mom, when she first got there, they didn't live together. He lived in one town and she lived in another. And she took care of like older people who were uh, close to dying. So she did that for a few years. Um, and she, he's had a stable job the 20 plus years that he's been there. Um, he's been there since 98. And he's never come back to Mexico. And my mom worked, she worked like that for about two years. And then when we got there, she her and my dad moved into an apartment together and she was working odd jobs at factories. Sometimes she, she like takes time off or she goes back to work. So in my experience in talking to other people here in Mexico who have spent time in the U S what 
what is common among immigrants who cross the border is that they plan to go temporarily and come back to Mexico. Did your parents go to the U.S. with that intention as well? Did they plan on coming back to Mexico? Yeah, I think I think they did. I, well, I know they did. They did plan to go for a few years and then come back, but I think they made a few mistakes because obviously they were young. So I think they planned to go there and like make enough money for us to have a nice house. Mm-hmm. But when my mom left... That I think that after like a year of being there, she missed us. So they decided to bring us because they had enough money to. And yeah. I remember growing up, they would talk about like, oh, like, cuando vamos a regresar a Mexico? And they would make a plan, right? But they never could because they were always working towards a, another goal to like make the house bigger, to save up more money, um, or to say, and my parents are still really good at saving, saving yeah. money. They have like, they always have a lot of money. Because mm-hmm. that is how they kind of train themselves to be in such a, a precarious situation, you know. Mm-hmm. So that plan never manifested because they would say like, oh, when they finish like elementary school. But then when we finished elementary school, they would say like, oh, when they finish middle school, when they like and then and then high school and then college. I never went to high school be- or I never went to college because when I finished high school, I realized I realized a few years before that I wasn't going to be able to go to like. I would be able to go to college and like get in, into debt, but I didn't want to do that because my parents were always very debt averse. So I tried to get some scholarships and I tried to get into a college. I didn't. Um, and when I didn't, like a little bit before I met who the man that I ended up marrying, um, he was American and I told I had I decided that I would come to Mexico because I realized what the possibilities were. So they were to either go to college and get into debt. And when I came out of college, I wouldn't be able to find a legal job because there was no way for me to become a resident during the time that I was living there, like from six to 18, because none of my family had ever gotten married in the U.S. or to an American citizen. So there was no way because we were like first generation immigrants. Mm -hmm. So when Gabe and I met, I was 17. I was just out of high school. I I had already decided that I would come back to Mexico and I was trying that relationship with him and I, we just ended up like falling in love and and liking each other a lot. So I told him that I was coming back when I graduated high school, I met him in February and I was going to graduate in May. And at some point during that period, we decided we would come to live here together. He had a job that kind of, they allowed him to bring it here and to do it from here. And we moved here. So my brother who lives there, he has DACA. So because he was in high school when Obama was president, so he has a work permit, he can work, but he can't travel outside of the U.S. Um, his girlfriend is American. They might get married. I don't know. There there will be a possibility for him to become a resident. My parents don't have one until I become a citizen. So after this year, I can apply for my citizenship. And through my resident, or through my citizenship, when it goes through, they can become residents. There would still be a process of court case penalties, but they've always paid their taxes. Um, they don't have any benefits, you know, as we all know. Um, but they, yeah, that that should be that should be a way for them to become residents and be able to travel. But that's still going to take about two, three years more. And they've already been living there for twenty-one years. I'm I'm just super blown away with 
you know, hearing your story and how much it sounds like my mother's and my mother, you know, all of this happened to her 60 years ago. And it's just, it's amazing how much evolves in just one generation, like from my mother's experience to my experience. And it's easy for us who are first generation Mexican American or even Jay, who's fifth generation to feel like these stories happened a while ago and forget that they're still happening today. Yeah, like I don't have a story like that in my pocket to be able to relate to the person next to me. You know, those, for me, those family members are like 100 years old and older. That's the thing. We lose touch with the next generation. We lose track because they tend to hide. You you don't talk about your story openly because it, it is dangerous, especially in times like these. It's a lot more dangerous. Do you think there were psychological effects or have you identified a lingering trauma as a result of your having to hide? Yes, I think I think uh, less conscious before. I think that when even when I came here, it was I'm from here, but I grew up. I grew up with like white influences. You know, the, the mm-hmm. country does sell you a certain image of itself, even even when you're inside. And I think especially when you're inside, it sells you kind of a, a, a manifest destiny idea. It sells you an idea of exceptionalism. It sells you an idea of, of being number one when we know that that's not true in so many cases, not medically, not um, in human rights, not economically either. There's just like the stability that, that the, that idea of stability as fragile as a goal is very fragile. And, and uh, like as a finite point in your life, that idea of retirement, you grow up with all of that being fed to you, but it isn't true. So I think that I didn't, I don't necessarily think that when I was, when I first came here, when I was younger, I was, I was hiding, I was being careful. I was aware of, of being careful, but I wasn't aware of my paranoia of people in the world until I came here. So it was a shock because I was very white, even even though in my mind I was like half and half or I was more Mexican because yeah. I was coming to live in Mexico. I was very white. Um, my I was very ignorant of a lot of realities. I was very naive until I started to like engage in the communities here in in what the reality of life is for people outside of that system. Even though I didn't grow up very privileged in the U.S., you start mm-hmm. to realize and it starts to shock you into the reality of life living here just day to day. So I wasn't I I wasn't par I wasn't aware that I was paranoid, and I started to become aware of my paranoia of my of that like that all of those things that you do to hide. To hide, and I—I I mean, it's a double, double-edged sword for me because you I, I'm also spend your life in warrior mode. A little bit, yeah. yeah. But it, um, I think I used more of those things as as ammunition. I think I used more of that to to get me to where I want wanted or want to go still, and not as victim. I think that it's very easy to victimize yourself. But I saw my parents getting up at six or at five or at four a.m. every day to go to work with no and in sight with not really a goal um, except for just surviving and trying to give us a good life. So yeah. I think that that also when I try, when I, when I'm down or when, I, when I go into victim mode, I, I did for a long time stay in that mode. But then when I got out of it, I realized like, that's not a way to live. And that's not a way to live because it's not a way to live hiding or being a victim of your situation because it's so much worse. Here and I realized how much worse it was for so many people. And then you 
grow older and older and you realize how much worse it is for so many people. So I'm that, I'm that like maybe 20% of really, really privileged people who was born at the right place at the right time that I could go live in the US, that I could have this kind of education, which isn't the best one. I mean, I didn't go to a Finnish school or a Swedish school where I learned how to be a good socialist. Um, but I, <laughs> I did, I did learn enough to have these kind of values. And maybe that came from my family. Maybe it came from my experience to have the kind of values of like to try to do the right thing when you can. So while you're telling your story, I'm simultaneously trying to compare my own and see where they are on different points of a scale. And one thing I really noticed was that my assimilation into American life happened over the course of generations. However, yours happened over the course of a few years in your own life. Yeah, well, I, th- I have clear examples of it. I know when it happened, too. I, I can see the points when it happened and when you just it just clicks and you're like, this is it. Um, the first time I think it happened, I, I was six when I started school there, like six and a half, almost seven. So I, I went to the first grade here um, for like a few months and kindergarten. Um, and then I skipped the second grade. I didn't go to the second grade because that, that was like our crossing and our parents took us out of school or I was living here with my grandma. She took us out of school. And then when we went there, we were like too late to go into like the school year. So my parents waited until I was going into the third grade. So I go into the third grade and my first day of class, it was like bilingual. Um, so I didn't know what anyone was saying. I, cause like your, your normal classes, your core classes are, are in English. And then you just have one hour of like bilingual class a day, which is, was a very fucked up system. Um, but immediately you're thrown into a cold pool of water and you have to swim. I know that during that year or during that period, I realized that I had an accent and my, um, my like schoolmates or my friends started kind of pointing it out and would make fun of me. So for me, it was a clear goal to not have one. That's why I don't speak with an accent. My parents weren't they they were they they never know they never knew about these things because it's just like little things that happen and you're embarrassed when you're young and you don't talk about them my brothers both have a kind of like mexican accent where their words are a little bit um less stylized than mine are and that is conscious because you want to appear like everybody else I do wish that I hadn't done that now. It would have been harder to survive. Um, I had very white friends and it was very easy to go to elementary school and to middle school and then to high school. And it was very easy to be gay because I spoke like like a basic gay white person, even though I was very far from, but that was conscious. And it made things so much easier for me when things were already hard at their core. It just made it all possible. I can relate to so much of what you're saying right now. Do you think you idolized, maybe even on a subconscious level, whiteness? Yes, 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 because there is, it, it's, it, it's a thing that the U.S. sells you. It's, it's an idealism um, of, of whiteness, and then it's also a fetishizing of yourself in a way where, like, you want to be desired for your color, for your history, but you have to clean it up enough to where it's understood in the white world in a very desirable way. Yeah, like in an exoticized way. I always played up on that too. I was aware that that being brown, that being femme, that being gay, to a certain 
person was exotic and it was interesting and it was fun and they were happy about it. So I know I know where the ideals stand. Like there is an ideal American like blonde. It's it's a Hitlerian thing maybe too. It's a blonde, blue-eyed kind of thing, man or woman. That's the ideal and like the the kind of like hillbilly redneck. Even though there there exists good people in those um, pockets of culture too. It just like that's not the ideal either. Mm-hmm. Um, and you're also, I mean, the I I learned so much about race, and I learned so much about like which which things are desirable in a race, which things aren't desirable in a race. Like, if you're black or if you're brown, you can be fetishized to a certain degree, but you can't be too black or too brown because that's mm-hmm. dangerous, or because that's off-putting, or because no one wants to hear that. Yeah, dude, that line is so thin. If you're on one side of it, you're accepted, but if you're too black or too brown, you're almost perceived as a threat. So I have another question regarding that. While you were integrating into American culture, do you feel like at the same time you were also giving up or forgetting what it felt like or meant to be Mexican? Yes. Yeah. 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 Because you you can't you can't keep both present all day every day. You have to give one up to be able to do one well. So I became a good American, uh, you know, and like uh, whatever that means over time, and I became a bad Mexican. And becoming a bad Mexican means like you you forget where you stand in privilege. You forget like the nuances of being Mexican. You also, uh, it's it's not even that when I came back here that I um, I disliked Mexicans, but I realized immediately the things that white people didn't like about them or weren't comfortable with, and I was uncomfortable with them. Not because they weren't interesting, not because they weren't charming. But because I was so conditioned that those things were not desirable, that those ways of talking, that those ways of living were not desirable. And now, I mean, now I'm, I'm accepting of whatever, you know, whatever socioeconomic level someone exists in and how they exist in it. And I, I can find the beauty and I can find the charm and I can appreciate the struggle in it, too. Whereas growing up, no, it was, it's just that thing where you're. You just there's no room for error. There's no room. Exactly. There's no room. It's not even that you forget. Maybe those those things are there. Those things are present. Like me knowing that my parents don't speak English and like the kinds of like holidays that sometimes we celebrated that I never talked to anybody else about because they had they had no reference point. So I, I didn't forget those things, but I I didn't purposely like make them um, a feature of myself or a characteristic or a highlight of myself. Like our birthday parties were Mexican and none of my white friends ever came to my birthday parties. So that's like two different worlds you're living in. Yeah, I would go to their white birthday parties and I'd be like, oh, this is what a white birthday party is. And I still like white birthday cake. (laughs) Yeah, boy, that's the jam. But there's still things where I was like, where's the piñata? Or, you know, and there was things that I saw were fucked up. Um, Just like I think that if anyone from that world came over to my world, they would be like, what the fuck is this? Why is there a live band playing? It's not a wedding. They're (laughs) only turning seven. When I came here, the importance of that, the importance of live music, the importance, it's a celebration of life, you know, because that's your connection to death. So I want to go back to something that you mentioned earlier, which um, which really kind of struck a chord with me, which is when you moved to Mexico from the U.S., it forced you to confront a privilege. There's obviously a lot of things that can be said around this topic, but as someone who's lived on both sides of the border, 
how do you feel about the recent trend of Americans moving to Mexico? Right, because we're not without recognizing that we're also part of that dynamic. And, and I know this shit sounds trite, though, because I know for myself that my motive was purely to come here to get closer to my roots, to, to get tied back to a culture. However, when I showed up, I absolutely, there came a point where I was really kind of uh, embarrassed and if not a little bit disgusted at the amount of people who, their pure motive was just to come here and take advantage of how cheap everything was. And that absolutely left me wondering if I was a part of that problem. Um, well, th- there's a lot, it's a lot to unpack. I think for, first of all, we can't stop the the movement of of culture and the 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 joining of them and the, we can't we can't do that because i it would be very um contradictory if i said like oh i don't think americans should come here because my family went to the us and they've lived a a better quality life than they thought they could live here and in a way they you know a lot of people didn't want them there but there was a lot of people that did and that encouraged their their happiness and their daily lives and their success there so i I don't think that I can I can justly say like oh no American shouldn't come here or European shouldn't come here. I think that the only thing that we can do is continue to educate, stay educated, and and communicative. And I think that the most important thing around that is if you are a white person or, or an American, you could even be a black person, whatever, um, or European coming to live here, what you have to be good at, if you go to live anywhere else, if I went to live in Thailand, or if I went to live in Paris, or if I went to live in China, what would be important of me would be to be, first of all, to be respectful and to ask questions. I think you have to be, you have to be humble. You have to have a, a, like a hunger for learning and a hunger for growth. If you're going Mm -hmm. to go live somewhere else, if not, then I would suggest you stay home, you know, (laughs) but that like, we have to be respectful towards immigrants here. Just like we demand the respect towards immigrants anywhere else. Um, But that, that is the important thing. And I think that we do commit a lot of mistakes and I think people will continue to commit mistakes coming here and saying like, Oh, Mexico is so wonderful because it's so cheap. Yeah. It's so cheap. But where are you, where are you positioned? And knowing that, understanding that, having that awareness and having that willingness to engage in the culture, to ask the right questions and to not step on any toes, I think that that's just the best thing that you can do. doesn't mean that you're not going to fuck it up because at one point or another, you're going to say the wrong thing. You're going to do the wrong thing. And I think that that's where we have to be forgiving also, because that's the world that we live in. That's the world that we're going to continue to live in. Um, and we can't stop the movement of it. Um, so just respect, respect is important from both sides. Did you ever struggle with your identity as a Mexican or as an American? I didn't because I mean, I, what I was Mexican, but I wasn't living in Mexico and my like, a lot of the things that I was growing up experiencing weren't Mexican. Um, they were American, but I'm not allowed to call myself an American technically, but I am because I'm a product of that society. I'm a product of that <laughs> culture. I'm a product of its teachings. But that that's just because I was having that experience so, so profoundly of like the same thing that you were probably experiencing, not being one thing, not being another, being both, wanting to identify well with both well enough to like where you weren't segregated or where you weren't, you weren't found out. I was dealing with that also in sexuality. I was dealing with that within sexual identity. Um, I was strong willed enough when I was young that no one 
could define me. And I, I think I'm, I'm still strong-willed enough where no one can um, because I don't allow them to. I think that I, I didn't have this like victim or I wasn't a victim of my situation, but I had an idea that my situation was harder than other people. So I was like, you can't really know or you can't really say what I am or you can't really define for me who you think I am because you don't have an insight into what the experience is. So something I'm curious about, um, just in like the difference in the way that we grew up in our association with what it means to be Chicano or Chicanismo, and a large part of that, you know, has political roots. I'm curious if you felt you had the right to participate in that movement. And I guess I ask because you mentioned several times today how you technically can't claim that you are an American. Um, I think it, it, was, it, it was something that seemed so removed from the reality of surviving in a place where we didn't belong, even if it was something that we wanted to engage in, which is which it is something that I engage in more now because I, I'm free to move around as a Mexican citizen or as a Mexican resident. I'm free to move around as an American resident. And also the power that came with like with like being or that comes with being an American resident. It's a weird thing when you don't have it. it and it's not a power that like that like gives you powers, but it's it's something that that lets you know that you're free in that world and that you're free in this world, um, even if you are before it anyway. I think it's, it, it, no, when I was young, it wasn't even an option. It wasn't something that was on the table. It was so far from just like surviving or just... Right, it's an interesting point because at the end of the day, these political fights for human rights, they are privileged and they require the freedom to fight for them. Yes, and I think that that's where that's where I'm at now. That I have that freedom, and that I have that, just that platform. And it's a it's a it's a privilege. It's a platform of like being able to speak openly without being sanctioned. Being able to to go to a rally or to or to do any of these things to go to a protest without being deported. Or you, it's it's just you can't engage in it even if you want to because there are all of those dangers that come with it. And if you want to keep your quality of life, if you want to keep your safety, you don't go where the danger is. Part of this also takes takes a little bit of the edge off it. It takes away the fear of being able to speak mm -hmm. about experiences openly and freely and to educate, just to educate the next person that comes after you if they're going to fight for a kind of right that, that the, the person after that is going to get. Right. Do you think by virtue of having these conversations, we are actively undoing that fear to be able to add to the larger voice? Because historically, that's something that's been denied to us as Mexican-Americans. And beyond that, if we can bridge the gap between our own community, then we're adding to our power in numbers. Yeah, I think I think any of us are doing it personally anyway. You're doing it personally to find your character, to find where you stand, to find your happiness. And then the, the next thing is to to do it for your community. And the, the step above that, which would be the ideal is to do it for humanity. But if you can do it for yourself, I, I mean, I, I don't judge. If, you, if you're just out here to do it for yourself and to, to help, like, you have your best chance and your best opportunity, that's great. If you can do it for your community and do it for the people that are, are around you, then that's even better. Um, if you can do it for your country, it's amazing for the, mm -hmm. for the rights that, that you see lacking. Mm -hmm. um, or for the representation that you see lacking in your country, 
And then if you can do it for humanity, then that's just, well, very good. Yeah. So earlier on in the conversation, you mentioned that you you had spent years in victimization mode, which I think anyone who's a part of a marginalized community can really relate to that, or I think a lot of us out here can, and and we can relate to kind of being in that mode and the self-harm that comes with it. And so I was wondering if you could give a little bit of insight on, on how you got yourself out of it. Well, um, I think... I, I wasn't, I wasn't able to get myself out of it. It was, it was something that happened in my life. Um, uh, so I was a victim of my, of myself and of, of my circumstance, silly as it sounds not, and I'm not, I don't, I, it is, it isn't to blame anyone, but I didn't, I wasn't given like the skills of, I mean, when I was young, I was, I was jealous and I was petty and all those things that, that you are when you are young, when some, when there isn't someone or enough people in your life, although I had good parents, but they were dealing with like other things like keeping food on the table and like keeping us housed. And I think that there are levels to that. You know, there are parents Mm -hmm. who already have that base covered and are able to give you like the tools to meet your personality when they see it developing like there are really good parents that have petty daughters or sons and they teach them to not be that or to to mitigate all of those characteristics um, in their personality. So I, I didn't grow up with that. I didn't grow up with, with anyone looking at me and looking at the dangers that were like brewing, you know, or looking at what was happening there, what was eventually going to turn into something that would harm me. It was it was a mixture of me having to go out into the world and having to learn to learn to live, learn to live in a, in a better way, um, in a way that was more sustainable for for my soul. Though I didn't learn easily, um, I learned by a lot of like heavy things happening. We're gonna hit you with one last question, Jesus. I'm gonna hit you right in the feels. And we were really excited when we asked each other this question for the first time because we don't get to answer it that often. But what would you tell a younger version of yourself? Oh, that's a good question. I recently answered this um, for a video. And I forget what I said. Probably every time I say something similar <laughs> but in a different way. Mm-hmm. I, and it is that. It's to just not be so hard on myself because it brings about more suffering. I know when I, when I've had a hard time being hard on myself and putting that extra pressure on myself is, is what has made it harder and what's made it, um, more impossible to find the clearest, fastest way out. Just like to, to be easy on yourself, to be loving to yourself, and to be kind to yourself first is what I would say to a younger version of myself. Because if I can't practice any of those values with myself, loving myself, freeing myself from from the kinds of burdens that society or that we put on ourselves, I can't do that with anybody else. Appreciate y'all tuning in. Here's a clip from the historical archive of the Chicano movement of 1971. They also took their campaign on the road from Calexico on the Mexican border to the state capital of Sacramento, far to the north, 
The National Chicano Moratorium Committee and the Brown Berets held a summer-long march aimed at gaining members for La Raza Unida in the barrios along the way. Well, you know, it might be true that our movement is a small minority, but it has far-reaching implications. And all revolutions or any change in any country is always made by a small minority and not by the majority. My friends, let us rise again. You know we can't let them win. We're Right. 